Hello, and welcome to the Constructor Cast, your AGC place for all the news, views, and interviews relevant to your construction business. I'm your host, Leah Pilconis. What is the PRO Act? What does it do, and why should contractors be concerned about it? About a year ago, back in February 2020, the U.S. House of Representatives passed comprehensive labor legislation called the Protecting the Right to Organize Act, or PRO Act for short, that would dramatically change the National Labor Relations Act. The bill was stalled in the Republican-controlled, at the time, Senate. The PRO Act was just reintroduced in Congress a short time ago with a lot of publicity surrounding how it will help workers to better organize and bargain for fairer wages, better benefits, and safer workplaces. If passed by the House and Senate, President Biden would likely sign it into law as part of a pro-union agenda. AGC released a statement right after the bill was introduced, warning that the name is misleading and explaining why the new PRO Act will hurt construction workers, undermine their privacy, and make it hard for the economy to recover. Here with me today to explain AGC's position is Steven Sander, CEO of the Associated General Contractors of America. Welcome, Steve. Thank you, Leah. Nice to be with you. Great. Thanks so much for joining us today. I'd like to start off by asking you to tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and experience working on labor relations. Uh, Well, first of all, um, I started at AGC in 1984, and I had the exalted title of Assistant Director for Collective Bargaining Services. Um, I was fresh out of law school. Uh, I had taken every labor law course that I uh, could while I was in law school uh, because uh, labor law was something that was uh, very interesting to me. It's more sociology than it is law, actually. And while I was in law school, I was able to take a course called Labor Relations in the Construction Industry, which actually was uh, not a law school course, but it was a course that was offered in the Graduate School of Engineering and Architecture at Catholic University in D.C., where I went to law school. In law school, I could take uh, up to six credits, in uh, graduate-level credits, and they would uh, count towards my law degree. Um, interestingly, and as a, as a, a sidebar, um, my instructor uh, in that class was a guy named Mike Kennedy, who is AGC's longtime general counsel. So back in the... Uh, early 80s, uh, Mike Kennedy was my instructor in labor law, and he would offer that uh, he continues to be my instructor to this day. A few years later, uh, I started teaching that class uh, uh, of labor relations in the construction industry. Even though it's it's been a long time since I've been actively involved in labor relations issues, the foundation, the fundamentals of labor law still exist today. At least they exist, uh, they will exist up until the PRO Act, uh, if the PRO Act is enacted, and um, a lot of those principles will be knocked down by the PRO Act, and I th- we'll get to that, details of that later. Thanks for sharing that background with us, Steve. As I suggested in my opening comments, the PRO Act is described as the most significant departure from existing federal labor law policy in decades. So before you tell us what is in the legislation, Mm -hmm. can you tell us why that statement is true? So 
federal labor policy has evolved over the years. Um, and the overall objective is to balance the interests of the legitimate interest of, of uh, competing parties, um, the union uh, representing the employees and the employer. And I think uh, it's important to put everything in context and, and go back in history. 1935, the National Labor Relations Act, commonly known as the Wagner Act, was passed at the height of the Depression. Uh, for the first time, it um, uh, allowed employees uh, to have a federal right to uh, organize, choose a union, and bargain, and have that union bargain on their behalf with the employer. Um, that also created the National Labor Relations Board, uh, that is the federal administrative agency that is uh, charged with um, administering the law. Uh, it also created unfair labor, what are known as unfair labor practices for employers who interfered with an employee's right to organize and bargain collectively, and also required that employer to bargain in good faith to reach an agreement with the union. Um, uh, it's important to note that uh, there were no uh, restrictions on the union. Uh, let's face it, 1935, you have a Democratic Congress, you have a Democratic President, Franklin Roosevelt, uh, and, and there were no basically um, uh, uh, counter um, protections uh, for the employer against excesses by the union. And so uh, we went through a period of about 12 years where the unions uh, exerted a lot of economic pressure to uh, uh, force employers to bargain. Um, there were strikes, jurisdictional disputes, secondary boycotts, all, all of these designed to increase the union's leverage and also to uh, coerce employers to sign agreements. Now, having said that, one of the main principles of the National Labor Relations Act is that uh, the employees have the choice, the free choice to join a union uh, through a secret ballot election. Uh, and we'll get to that later in this discussion too, um, I would, I would uh, suppose. So fast forward 12 years later, 1947, post-World War II, Republicans take over the Congress. Uh, Harry Truman, a Democrat, is president. Republican Congress wanted to uh, curtail the excesses that the unions had um, enjoyed uh, for the previous 12 years. Uh, they passed the Labor Management Relations Act, which is commonly known as the Taft-Hartley Act. In that bill, they um, essentially provided more balance to federal labor policy. They instituted unfair labor practices um, uh, against unions uh, for um, uh, interfering with an employee's right not to join a union for um, it, it eliminated secondary boycotts. It eliminated the right uh, to picket over jurisdictional disputes. Um, so they created a more balanced approach to labor policy. Uh, at the same time, it, um, it, it also um, allowed for the system of what we now know as right to work laws. And uh, the, the way that works is that a there's a there is a uh, section of the net of the act called Section 14B, which says a 
a state law uh, that makes a union security clause in a collective bargaining contract. A union security clause requires an employee um, to pay union dues as a condition of employment, but Section 14B says a state can make those clauses unenforceable in state court. Twelve years later, we get to 1959, and there is another uh, change to federal labor policy, and it's known as the Landrum-Griffin Act. The biggest change in that uh, was that it would al- it would allow for what are known as pre-hire agreements in the construction industry. That recognized the the difficulty in organizing employees at a construction site uh, and having an election at that construction site because a construction site changes on a daily basis. There are people there one day that are not there the next day. Uh, so it's very hard to determine what the appropriate bargaining unit is and um, give the union an opportunity to demonstrate majority support for the union. So basically what Congress did was to um, institute a pol- policy that for practical purposes was already in existence, uh, that a union in the construction industry w- would sign a labor agreement with the contractor because the presumption was that the union members supported the union. They went through their apprenticeship program. They sit in their hiring hall waiting to be called to work. Uh, And so under these so-called pre-hire agreements, um, it allows the employer and the union to engage in collective bargaining without a formal showing of majority support for the union. Since that time in 1959, there have been been no real major uh, legislative changes uh, to federal labor policy. Really helpful background in understanding just, you know, the long history of well-established labor laws and just the decades of work to, as you, you described, the balance, the employee and employer rights. What do you see wrong with uh, Congress passing a bill that right now is designed to, as as we have said, completely transform the labor relations landscape? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, the bill passed last year in a Demo- Democratic House um, narrowly. Uh, there were seven uh, Democrats that voted against it and five Republicans that voted for it. Um, the House House majority for the Democrats is very narrow today, um, so uh, we are interested in. Um, if, well, it's likely we won't be able to win in the House, but we want to make it as close a vote as possible. And now with the Senate 50 um, 50 uh, with the vice president uh, able to break a tie. Um, the sense of urgency has risen considerably uh, because the math uh, tells us that there's a possibility that uh, this bill could pass the Senate. And to make that point, just this week, the Senate bill was introduced. It has 45 co-sponsors, uh, all of them Democratic. Um, the uh, five, five Democrats that are not co-sponsors are Agnes King from Maine, who is uh, uh, technically an independent, but caucuses with the Democrats. Uh, the two um, uh, Arizona senators, Kella, uh, Kelly and Sinema, uh Senator uh, Warner from Virginia, and Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia, uh, who is you know already is at the center of every uh, controversial issue. It's the deciding more or less uh, the deciding vote. So. 
Uh, the point of the matter is, is for us to win on this, we have to keep all 50 Republican senators and pick up one of the Democrats. Um, that is, if we may, if the if the Senate maintains the filibuster, if the Senate maintains the filibuster rule, then uh, it would take 60 votes to pass that pass the bill. And I can't imagine a scenario where 60 votes would be uh, available for this bill. Let's get into the meat of kind of what's what's in the bill. Uh, there's a lot of talk about how the PRO Act allows secondary boycotts. Right. For those who don't know what a secondary boycott is um, and why it's a bad thing for construction, let's spend a little bit of time on sure. that. Steve, can you can you yeah. explain secondary boycotts? I'll do my best. So, uh, so let's put it in the context of a construction uh, project. So you have a general contractor employing a number of subtrades. And let's assume this is a, a union general contractor and the majority of the subtrades that are on the job are union subcontractors. So let's further assume that the electrical subcontractor um, is in engaged in a dispute with the electrical uh, IBW, the uh, electrical workers union. And so the IBW wants to put pressure uh, on that on the subcontractor, the ethical subcontractor, to uh, acquiesce to the demands of the union. If the electrical subcontractor is standing firm, uh, then it's advantageous for the union to want to, to put uh, what's known as secondary pressure. So uh, the general contractor has no um, no role in dispute between the subcontractor and its union. Uh, but if the if the union, the IBW, were to picket that job site, calling out the unfairness or potential unfair labor practices of that electrical subcontractor, and they were to set up a picket line, under current law, the, the general contractor can set up what's known as a reserve gate. And that reserve gate says that uh, it's reserved only for employees of the electrical subcontractor. And so under current law, it would be appropriate for the IBW to picket at that reserve gate and try to influence the employees of the subcontractor not to go to work. But the employees of all the other subtrades and the general contractor uh, would be able to go through another gate where the pickets would not be allowed to try to uh, influence or block access to that part of the project, which allows the project to continue. So under the removal of the prohibitions on secondary boycotts um, contemplated in the PRO Act, that ability to, to implement that reserve gate uh, would be denied. And in other words, the IBW would be able to picket the entire job site and try to influence the employees, the union employees of the general contractor and other trades not to cross that picket line and go to work. Well, if the employees don't show up for work, uh, that causes delays in the project. And that means the general contractor is um, concerned about the damages for delay clauses with the owner. That general contractor is going to try to put pressure on that electrical subcontractor to meet the demands of the unions so that there's no disruptions uh, at the job site. Or in the alternative, kick the subcontractor off the job, which obviously is going to 
involved uh, penalties, uh, financial penalties uh, for breach of contract with that subcontractor. So essentially, this this change in the law gives unions exceptional power to influence um, not only the the employers that they have a dispute with, but to use that as leverage uh, to cause other employers to put pressure on that uh, employer or to cease doing business with that employer. So that's the problem with uh, removing the prohibition on secondary boycotts. Okay, so this, I mean, clearly sounds like it has just huge widespread implications. And if just to make sure that I understand this, if I could just kind of repeat back to you what I what I believe I'm hearing and maybe even take a step back even farther. You're saying that presently, um, what happens now, you have picketing directed at an employer with whom, you know, as you described, a union has a lawful dispute and, and you're kind of calling them. And I've seen it written as that's like the primary employer. The primary employer, correct. But, but the PRO Act would allow unions to direct these protests, these boycotts, pickets mm. at just any neutral bystander. So any any employer, it could be, and, right. and I think these are called the secondary clients. Correct. So right. it could be the GCs, if we're talking about this in a construction context, it could be the GCs, other job sites, there are other vendors, there are other suppliers, neighboring mm-hmm. businesses that have nothing to do with the labor dispute. Right, correct. And you can further extrapolate it to going to the owner of the project. And so let's assume this is a project for- um, Like a hospital. A hospital, right. So you go to the the headquarters of the hospital and you start picketing that hospital and say that the the hospital, uh, you know, uh, indirectly has hired a subcontractor who is acting unfairly with the union. And then what happens to the nurses union uh, employees that that work for that hospital? Are they going to honor that picket line? And that gets to the dangers that you described to the to the entire um, well for this purpose you know the entire hospital that once that picket line goes up all the union employees will probably refuse to cross the picket line um, even if they're not involved in the dispute. Correct. Correct. In solidarity okay. with the other union. Really, the measure um, could mean that many workers could be idle for a dispute that they don't even stand to benefit. Exactly. Okay, thank you for for explaining that. And I mean, secondary boycott, I believe that AGC is seeing as one of the main huge um, issues with this uh, with this legislation. Right. Well, more more seasoned uh, members of AGC will remember back in the 1970s uh, that there was a big labor law bill called common situs picketing, which would have allowed exactly uh, what we just discussed. And huge imp- impacts for multi-employer job sites. It's pretty clear that this is a this is a really effective economic weapon that you're be- going to hand over to the unions if this okay. if this bill passes. So Steve, let's talk a little bit more about what else union contractors should sure. be worried about under the PRO Act. So uh, one thing uh, that, that the uh, bill does is it, it allows no prohibitions on picketing. Uh, and that includes picketing uh, known as jurisdictional picketing, uh, where you are trying to influence the the contractor's assignment of work. So if a contractor assigns, let's say, uh, a skid steer uh, to the laborers, the driving of a skid steer, uh, and the operating engineers say, well, wait a second, that's operating a vehicle, that's our work. 
uh, they make a claim for the work and the employer says, no, that I have a contract with laborers to do this. Under current law, then the operating engineers cannot picket uh, uh, to claim that work. Now they can uh, if the bill passes. So that would, that, that would cause significant disruptions. The bill also eliminates, um, there's a process that the National Labor Relations Board has uh, to resolve jurisdictional disputes. Uh, that process is eliminated in this bill. It creates a problem where the employer who has an agreement with the laborers to do the work, the operating engineers claim under their contract, they have the right to perform the work. And then, you know, how does the employer resolve this dispute? Uh, he may have to have, an, have a uh, compromise where he has mixes it up uh, between the, oper the operating engineers and the laborers. Now, clearly, the reason he probably cho uh, chooses the laborers to do this work is that their wage rate is lower than the operating en engineer's wage rate. Uh, so that will increase the employer's cost uh, for the project. So beyond the jurisdictional uh, picketing issue, there's also the issue of unlimited strikes at any time and, and for any reason. Uh, and under current law, strikes are generally limited to uh, where an employer has committed an unfair or alleged to have been committed an unfair labor practice or the parties have reached an impasse in bargaining. And under the PRO Act, those limitations would no longer exist. So a union could engage in partial strikes. Uh, you know, well, we're not going to perform this, this part of the job, this part of the work right now. They could uh, engage in wildcat strikes. They could engage in strikes in advance of bargaining or during bargaining. You know, basically, uh, every day the employer would have to worry about, is the union going to go on strike today? My colleague Jimmy Christensen uh, says it, it would be like living in France, uh, where uh, you never know any day whether the trains are going to operate because the unions there call, happen to decide they're going to call a strike that day for whatever reason. You know, that obviously creates all kinds of disruptions in the economy, particularly in the construction industry when contractors typically have damages for delay cl clauses. The unions know that, uh, and they can use strikes as, as leverage at any time to try to get the employer to capitulate to the union's demands. What about the greater risk for union firms for uh, enhanced penalties and potentially private yeah. lawsuits? Can you speak to yeah. that a little bit? Sure, but that's not that's not uh, limited to union employers. That's oh, that, okay. That, that, that's important. It, yeah. To know. Yes. This is uh, all employers. So an employer that that is found guilty of committing an unfair labor practice, the officers and directors of that company uh, could be held liable um, personally for those infractions. Uh, similarly, the bill would also allow for a private right of action for employees who um, allege that their right to organize and engage in collective bargaining uh, has been interfered with by the employer. Uh, even if the National Labor Relations Board had adjudicated in favor of the employer in that unfair labor practice charge, employees would still be able to go to federal court and allege violations and collect 
uh, damages if if the court found in their Steve, favor. Steve, I know you put together a really nice one-page uh, fact sheet that goes over this proposed legislation and uh, provisions that are of particular concern to union contractors. I just wanted to note that we're going to uh, provide a link to that in the show notes. Okay. Um, is there anything else that you specifically wanted to call out um, regarding impacts of the PRO Act to union contractors yeah. before we move on? Right. Sure. One additional issue is under current law, uh, where the union and the employer reach impasse during collective bargaining, uh, where they get to a point where they does not appear that they can reach an agreement, the um, employer can implement their last best offer uh, until the union and the employer get back to collective bargaining. And in doing so, that provides the employer with some leverage to keep the union uh, or try to get the union to come back to the bargaining table. Under the PRO Act, the status quo would have to be maintained if the parties reach impasse, which means that if you're in a down market and the employer is interested in perhaps a, a cut in wages and or benefits or or a slower rate of increases the union opposes that then this would allow the union to postpone what may be inevitable because of market conditions and one additional point i think uh, needs to be made here is that you know uh, i talked earlier about pre-hire agreements uh, and that is an accommodation that allows a union, uh, a union to negotiate an agreement with a contractor without the formal showing of majority support through a secret ballot election uh, for the employees. As the law has evolved, um, those pre-hire agreements at the expiration, uh, there is no ongoing duty for the employer to bargain with the union, unlike the what are known as 9A agreements, which have a permanent relationship. And that's typically what you would see in an in industrial setting, that the union has has demonstrated majority support. They have done a series of collective bargaining agreements. A collective bargaining agreement expires. The employer still has an ongoing duty to bargain because the majority support that was demonstrated many years ago is deemed to still be in place um, unless you, the employer can prove that that majority support no longer exists. So going back to the construction situation, the duty to bargain under the under the uh, federal labor law uh, ends at the expiration of that contract. Now, as we all know, as a practical matter, a union contractor will continue to bargain because of pension withdrawal liability, which is basically the hook that keeps them into the relationship. But let's assume we get to a point where that pension withdrawal liability were to go away, then the employer's ability to walk away from the relationship at the expiration of the pre-hire agreement under current law would exist, but under the PRO Act that there would still be an, a, an ongoing or permanent duty to bargain. Thanks for walking us through all that, Steve. I mean, a lot, a lot in there and a lot um, I think that people need to pay attention to. 
I want to talk about sort of the flip side of things here for those open shop firms yes. who are listening um, to you talk about the PRO Act and thinking that this is just a problem for union contractors. Mm -hmm. Are they right? Do do open shop or, or non-union contractors, uh, really employers as well as employees, do they face threats under the no. PRO Act? Well, I think the um, the first threat for open shop contractors is the quickie election or ambush election, uh, as well as the, I call it the reverse card check mechanism in the bill. I've already acknowledged that it's difficult to hold a, an election on a construction site, but uh, the fact that the bill would uh, have these so-called quickie elections where it also would restrict an employer's ability to communicate with their employees about the benefits of, of bargaining collectively um, does set up a potential scenario where elections could be held on, on um, a uh, construction site. Uh, beyond that, though, you have to think about uh, the, the previous discussion about secondary boycotts and picketing and how those tools can be used to basically organize a construction employer from the top down rather than the bottom up. Bottom up being an election, top down being put putting uh, pressure on a, an employer. Let's let's assume it's through the owner of, of a project to sign a sign a pre-hire agreement or collective bargaining agreement with a union. Uh, so for instance, let's go back to that hospital scenario. Uh, the uh, uh, contractor is an open shop con contractor. The hospital is, has uh, uh, employed them to, uh, to perform, uh, to build a, a new wing on the hospital. Unions get wind of that and they start pressuring the hospital to change contractors. Well, the hospital's got a contract with that contractor. But the hospital can put a lot of pressure then on the on the employer and say, hey, I'm getting a lot of heat from the unions here. But I think you need to sign a pre-hire agreement with the unions or else I can't have you perform any work for us in the future. Or, you know, I may, you know, take you off this job. So that puts a lot of pressure on that employer, an open shop employer to perhaps change their labor policy. Steve, can I can I first ask a question yeah. about just the, the ambush sure. elections? Really? Uh, just to make sure that everyone who's listening um, is familiar with am the ambush election procedures, that in essence is shortening the time frame between Correct. the filing of the petition and the date on which the election is conducted. How much would it shorten it? And and under that compressed time frame, mm -hmm. like what what um, you had alluded to, what the implications for the workers would be as right. well as the employer. But is the idea that the uh, the labor unions would likely you know win more elections right. because they're taking sure. place more quickly? Yeah, and I think that's a good lead into the whole discussion about the um, the card check issue, uh, because the first step in trying to seek recognition for a union as the agent for bargaining for the employees is a process known as demonstrating interest, which means that the the union collect or collects what are known as authorization cards where an employee signs a card that says, I would like to have Union X be my collective bargaining representative. Uh, and once a union um, collects 30% of cards from what's known as an appropriate bargaining unit, they can petition the National Labor Relations Board to conduct a secret ballot election. Under the PRO Act, 
once that demonstration that's showing of interest with 30% of the employees signing that authorization card, that would trigger an election. And under the PRO Act, that would occur within 10 days. So that's a very compressed time frame for an employer to be able to discuss with their employees. Under current law, an, an employer can have uh, basically call an all staff meeting uh, and make a presentation on why they don't think it's in the employee's best interest to join the union. That ability to communicate to the, the employees would be uh, taken away by the PRO Act. So let's let's take this a step farther. So I've already acknowledged the difficulty in having an election on a construction site. Well, on a 10-day period, you're probably, if you time it right, you're going to probably get you know, a, a large nucleus of the employees of that particular employer on the site, which would perhaps allow for an election and for the union to gain a majority vote. So let's assume um, in those collections uh, uh, of those authorization cards, the union were the union was able to collect more than 50% of the employees. The elections held, and even though the union has collected 50%, or more of the cards, the elections held, and in the secret ballot election, the union gets less than 50% of the vote. Why did that happen? Well, uh, you can presume that in the protection of a secret ballot election, a employee is going to exercise their true free choice, as opposed to when a colleague or a union business agent shows up at their house or shows up in the, you know, at their car at the end of the day at a construction project and says, hey, I need you to sign this authorization card, giving us permission uh, to be your bargaining representative. Well, that that could be a coercive environment. Um, and the employee may sign it, even though it's not their true intention to have the union be their bargaining representative. But to um, avoid an unnecessary confrontation, they sign it to have the matter uh, addressed. So what this reverse card check says is that the union has 50% plus one of authorization cards. The election's held. The union loses the election. Well, the, the PRO Act makes a presumption that because there, were there was more than a majority of authorization cards, that's the true intent of the employees and they would disregard the election results and certify the union as the bargaining representative for the employees. I see how you really need to look at these two things in tandem, kind of recognizing the PRO Act providing that even if the, if the union loses the election, that you could still set aside the results and, and certify the union as the representative, yeah. um, even though all this is happening within a 10-day period. This leads me to think it's a perfect time to ask you about the anti-privacy measures mm -hmm. that AGCs talked a lot about, because I think all of that fits perfectly into to what you just talked about and how the PRO Act um, would really be putting the uh, the uh, employer and, and as well as the employee, I, I think of both union and non-union really even in a more compromising position. Yeah. Isn't that correct? Yeah. I mean, uh, the employer would be required to provide without the employee's consent to a union who is trying to organize that employer uh, with uh, uh, personal information of, uh, about every employee who would be in the appropriate bargaining unit their address, their phone number, their email address, which gives the 
the union unfettered access to those employees, you know, allows them to show up unannounced at their doorstep and say, hey, I have a, I'd like you to sign this authorization card. I don't think you, you need to uh, extrapolate too far to just think about what, what pressure that puts on an employee in that situation. Does being against the PRO Act, does that mean that you're anti-union? Of course not. Um, it means that you're, you're for maintaining the delicate balance in federal labor policy that acknowledges the, the rights and obligations of both the union and the, employ, and, and the employer um, and, and the union as the representative of the employees. When you think about all of the economic power that would be transferred to unions under the PRO Act, it will cause a lot of disruption, particularly in the construction industry. The one challenge, I think, for union employers in, in this, if it were to become law, how tolerant are construction owners going to be uh, if they hire a union contractor and, and, and have to put up with uh, pickets over jurisdictional disputes, with intermittent strikes, with uh, you know all of the other uh, disruptions that could delay uh, the building of a project and also perhaps bring unflattering press on the project and the project owner. In your initial comments, Leah, you talked about the PRO Act being uh, presented as a way for employees to enhance their, their livelihoods. Uh, you know, one of the challenges, I think, for unions over the last 30, 40 years is that they have not grown, particularly in the private sector, uh, they have a shrinking membership. Uh, and in many ways, I, that's because I think of all of the changes in workplace policy that's been brought about by the federal government. Employers have to provide health care uh, if you work 30 hours. There's uh, Now we have paid leave st uh, statutes. We have minimum wage statutes. We have other protections uh, for employees uh, that make you know, many employees, when they're presented with the opportunity to join a union, to say, hey, wait a second, um, I, I don't have a bad deal here, and marginally, I'm not going to get much more if I join a union, and at the same time, I'm going to have to be paying into paying union dues and union fees. You know, that has been more influential in uh, the shrinking uh, percentage of employees that are in the private sector that actually belong to unions. And, and clearly, the PRO Act is designed to, to correct that and to, and to add to the union roles. And when you think about the political impact of that is more unions, uh, more union membership, more union uh, contributions to political candidates, uh, and that, you know, certainly has uh, an influence on the political balance of our country as well. You've shared a, a lot of really important and useful information here today, Steve. I want um, you to uh, tell people what what is AGC doing to push sure. back against the PRO Act? And, and also, yeah. for people who are listening, not just AGC members, but, but other people who are listening to this podcast, yeah. what, can they, what can they do? Is, is there a place that AGC has provided that people can go yeah. to, uh, to, to learn more and, and yeah. to um, provide their voice? Yeah. Well, first of all, I'd say that um, AGC has taken a leadership role in the business community to make sure that the rest of the business community understands the negative aspects that the PRO Act has on all employers uh, in the country. And we've tried to motivate them to do some of the things that we're doing. We are going to embark on a digital advertising campaign in select 
House congressional districts to try to create a lot of uh, activity uh, to influence the votes of those uh, members of Congress that may be sitting on the fence on this. We are obviously are encouraging uh, our members to engage in this battle by um, going to our website, advocacy.agc.org backslash proact, all one word, P-R-O-A-C-T, and to very quickly communicate with your member of Congress as well as your two senators. We need the, the construction industry and the business community in general to make a strong case that, that there is a lot more to this this legislation than how it's been described in the press. And so it's necessary for all of our members to make their voices heard. As you said, Steve, taking action is really easy um, on our website. It's uh, advocacy.agc.org slash proact, P-R-O-A-C-T. Um, you can submit a pre-written message um, as is to your member of Congress, or you can customize it with personal information about how this issue is going to impact you and your company based on what you've heard today. Steve, is, is there anything else? that we did not cover that you would like to um, yeah. end kind of in closing? I'm sure I forgot something, but uh, if you go to that website, you will see all the materials that we have on this issue. I guess if uh, I would I would offer that if I haven't convinced you by now that this is a bad deal, I don't know that I ever could. We certainly encourage uh, all of our listeners to uh, take the necessary steps to try to keep this from becoming law. Well, thank you, Steve. You you shared a, a lot of great information. We appreciate your time and your insight and your expertise and your dedication to the industry and, and the issue. We're going to have a lot of useful links in the show notes um, where you can just click and, and get to AGC's resources. Thanks for being with us today, Steve. My pleasure. Thanks, Leah. I want to thank everyone out there for listening. We really appreciate it. And this has been another episode of AGC's Constructor Cast. Please subscribe to Constructor Cast from your podcast app, or you can stream all available episodes right from your computer at www.agc.org slash constructorcast. If you found value in this episode, please leave a rating and review. It helps people discover the show. And don't forget to follow us on social media for more construction-related content. You can find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram by searching Associated General Contractors of America. Thank you so much.